Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These, the first episode. I started this show because in my own life, I think like a lot of us, I found that people who I knew and cared about and in fact loved had some pretty specific and pretty significant differences from me that we'd just been able to not talk about. We'd been able to kind of just focus on the turkey at Thanksgiving and uh, talk about football. And even if the football conversations got kind of animated, you know, it was all understood to be within the realm of, of differences we can tolerate. Although college football, sometimes hard for me with Baylor specifically. But this election revealed some pretty significant fault lines. And it also revealed to me that it was almost impossible to have conversations with the people I loved about these fault lines. I think that's because when we talk to people we love, it's never just about the topic at hand. It's also about our love for them and their love for us and whether or not we feel secure in it. So weirdly, my idea was I'm, I'm not going to talk to them, although maybe that'll happen eventually, but I am going to talk to people I disagree with and people maybe you disagree with, and I'm going to try and listen and hope they listen to me and see where that gets us. I don't have a specific goal. I just have an idea that this is the way forward. So we're going to start with Pastor Christopher Jackson, who's a guy that I met via Twitter, like so many of us meet uh, in the media world. Uh, He's a pastor from Wisconsin. He ministers to two rural counties, Door County and Kewanee County. And we'll talk about how they went for Trump after voting for Obama twice in one county and Obama and Romney just by a hair in 2012 in another county. Uh, And I'm also going to talk to my colleague, Jamil Smith, uh, just about the news of the week. Welcome to the first show. Thanks for listening. So, welcome, Pastor Christopher Jackson, to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be on. So you're a pastor in Wisconsin, Door County and Kewanee County, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So I serve two churches. One is in northern Kewanee County. Uh, The other is in southern Door County. Both these communities are about 30 miles, 35 miles northeast of uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin. And let's just tell the story about how it came to be that you and I are talking, because I I think that might set up our conversation better than anything else, which is that in the immediate aftermath of the election, a lot of people had questions, right? And there was a lot of conversation on Twitter about how this happened, right? Like this took so many people by surprise. And you came across my Twitter feed because there was a little bit of a debate happening about 
whether or not Trump had snowed these people in the Midwest. I think that was the, the gist of it, right? Yeah. The idea that he'd, he they were rubes and he'd suckered them because he doesn't actually represent their values. That was the centerpiece of the of that argument about how they were snowed was that Trump is a bad guy with bad motives and bad values and he sold himself to these good Midwesterners and they got taken. Yeah, my comment uh, more or less is that they had their eyes wide open. Um, they pretty well understood who he was. Almost everybody I spoke with in my two counties, and in my two counties that I served did go for Trump. Um, you know, almost everybody I spoke with did not particularly like him. Um, now, they didn't like Hillary Clinton either. They were uh, there was quite a bit of personal turmoil that a lot of people had, you know, which, of the, in, their, in their opinion, which of these two bad options okay. do I choose? What's, and and what's that was actually the nub of the argument that interested me. And I, I actually agree with you that these people were not snowed, that they went into the voting booth with their eyes wide open to choose someone that in your conversations with your congregants, they had told you, they're aware that he's not a good guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. And so now we get to the big question. So we've set up an argument, which I, I live in the Midwest. As you know, I'm from the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think these people were taken. But they went ahead and made this choice to elect this person whose values they questioned, if not actively felt, did not represent them. And let's talk a little bit about why you think they did that. Like, it was for them the lesser of two evils, or or do you think they had a hope that he would change, or what was the thinking of people who knew Trump's not a good guy, yeah, but going to elect him anyway? Well, you know, I actually would say uh, it's the same reason why they both counties went for Obama uh, the first time around. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of my counties uh, voted for President Obama. And uh, and selected him, and actually and, by by pretty high margins the first time around, eleven yeah. points in Kwani, uh, sixteen points in Door, and in fact, even though Kwani wound up going for Romney in two thousand twelve, it was only by five points. Yeah, so it, it was pretty close. Particularly a wide margin. Yeah, yeah. but then and, it went by went to to Trump in two thousand sixteen, twenty eight points. Right. Yeah. So, in a sense. What I think that um, Trump did is, in a sense, he, he kind of did what Obama appealed to for them, except in some ways in a more, I don't know, um, bombastic or, or sort of loud way. I think that people have a sense that things are not going particularly great for you know, our communities and uh, communities like ours. And there's a sense that things need to change. And, and this was Obama's really, you know, battle cry, especially mm-hmm. his, his first time around. You know, we need, we need change. And so I, I believe that that resonated uh, with them. And, you know, this was, you know, Trump's cry as, as well, that, um, you know, Clinton is status quo, uh, she's going to continue things in the same track as they've been going, which which continue to, to have not been great for us, you know, over the Obama years. Um, 
And so the appeal was, yeah, I'm a, I'm a change candidate. I'm going to, to shake things up. Um, and then he spoke specifically to concerns that, that my people have. You know, as I said, most of my people are blue-collar, white, working-class people. They, they work um, in the agricultural sector. They work in the, um, in the manufacturing sector, uh, service sector, and there was a sense that uh, you know he at least uh, he maybe not have the you know the firmest plans in place, but you know he did talk about the necessity of, of bringing right. back factories and manufacturing and uh, uh, building up that sector again. And, and I think that that the the general call for change in including the the call for uh, re- revitalizing industries that my people are involved in was a very, very powerful message for them. And I want to be very clear that the, the fact that they went for Obama, you know, the first time around, I think precludes what I think is a common answer that people just sort of resort to when it comes to discussing, you know, the white working class and their support of of Trump, and that it was a, a racially motivated vote. Okay, um, so now we're gonna we're getting into the real sort of nitty gritty here. Yeah, because I'm going to agree with you, and again, this is something I think that I full heartedly agree that this is not a choice. The choice for, that they made for Trump was not something that they made with hate in their hearts for people who were different than them. I agree with you. I, I agree that. No one or very few, I can't know their hearts really, but I don't see this as being animated by a particular racial conscious, definitely not conscious racial antipathy. But I do want to ask you a question about this, which is that, and this is something that you and I discussed briefly before, which is that the thing that I have trouble with, with their selection of Trump, even though he's a bad guy, is that they saw his bad behavior and thought, but he'll do good things for me? Like, that was basically the logic? Well, I, I think that, I think it was more about he'll do good things for our communities and for our our families. Right. Which basically, you know, to make these places work comes down to jobs and, right. and paying jobs. Right. And I guess the part where I feel like race has to come in is that if they were focused on, you know, Trump's promise of doing good things for their community, and I, I'll, I'll take it out of, like, the personal, like, avarice area. I didn't mean to imply, like, they were thinking purely of personal gain. But because they were thinking of it in terms of, like, Trump will good th- do good things for my community, which is, I looked up, 97% white, they were able to kind of ignore the stuff he said or not take seriously the stuff he said that raised you know, alarm bells for people that were thinking, or people who were, people of color. Yeah. And I think that probably in some ways that's a, perhaps a fair estimation, though I'd like to kind of turn that in a, in a different sort of way to help explain why that might be. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think that what it really comes down to is the peculiar virtues of, of these communities and communities like them, which 
in a sense, sort of cause that, you know, what, what you kind of talked about to happen. Okay, so I think that if, if you were to really um, boil down, you know, kind of the core values of my communities and, and many communities across the country like them, mm-hmm. it's about family, it's about local community, local place. And then as well, there's a there's a like a tertiary concern, and I, I do think that this plays into to this. Also, a desire to kind of be a part of of something big and something you know bigger than themselves mm-hmm. uh, as individuals in a way. Okay, so um, in any case, when it comes to that, you know, that's a beautiful thing. I you know the, this care and concern for family. Um, you know, as a pastor, I go and I, I visit, um, you know, lots of people in, in nursing homes and, and so on. And in places that I have served, like St. Louis or, or Lexington, Kentucky, like a, a pretty big city, you know, 300,000 people, and, and for Kentucky, pretty cosmopolitan, I've been honestly, you know, shocked at the way that people take care of their, their elders in places like this. I mean... Um, just you know, filthy homes and kind of neglected and so on. I, I've never seen anybody, the seniors, so well taken care of as they are here. They're they're held in great regard, great esteem. Uh, likewise, local community, local place, they take care of each other. So, um, in other words, I've I've had people from Habitat for Humanity approach me and say, we cannot, we cannot penetrate your community because we just don't know of any we know there's there's needs down there but you guys just kind of take care of each other and and don't reach out to organizations like us mm-hmm. okay so the those virtues of, of valuing family and and local community and and place are are very beautiful and very powerful and and really help to play make places like this you know continue to to thrive and to to do well now on the other side, the flip side of things is that does that lead to maybe insularity and well, well, sure, yeah, you know, in group, out group kind of identification. Like if you are really in group focused, you know, like well, and I can talk about that from a personal way. I, you know, I'm not from here, mm-hmm. and even if I live here to the age of ninety, I will still be an outsider. Mm-hmm. My children will still be outsiders. Really, like if my grandchildren end up growing here, maybe they'll be kind of on the inside. Okay, <laughs> not to say that these people don't don't love me. I, I believe that they do, but um, there's a whole aspect to life here that that I'm just not a part of. Right. And I don't think people are being hateful towards me, but but they don't, you know, sort of realize that the way that things work around here does have a way of of maybe not taking in regard people who aren't on the inside, okay? Right. And so the, the cares and the concerns of, of minorities and, um, and so on within the United States about the Trump presidency, would it be possible, did those maybe, were those not as much heard by my people? I, I, I think that there's a, probably a good case for that. But it, it's, again, I don't know if it's so much a hateful thing as much as it is the working out of their peculiar virtues here. 
I'm not I'm not going to say this is a generous way to put it because I think it's actually true. Like kind of what we we can never know what's in their hearts, but it's definitely true that um, they were thinking about Trump and his relevance to changing their community, which is largely white working class, and that perhaps this focus made it harder for them to hear or did not bring to the forefront some of the things he said that alarmed those of us who are thinking about other concerns. And so we're a month in. How are things working out there? (laughs) How do they feel about their vote? How do they feel about what's going on? Honestly, it has been largely quiet. Mm. Okay, so, and I, you know, in preparation for this, I kind of asked around a little bit. And, um, you know, you have to keep in mind, again, you know, my my people aren't on Twitter, you know, they're not. <laughs> Most uh, people aren't, right, frankly. Right, right. You know, so that kind of like outrage machine or, or whatever that, you know, either on both sides of, mm-hmm. of the political divide, I mean, that's not something that they are, you know, plugged into uh, at all. Um, so, you know, things have been rather quiet. You know, when the, um, I did hear a few people talk when the, the travel executive order came out, and it, it kind of just came up as a more of a passing thing. Um, they continue to be, you know, rather disillusioned with Trump and his persona and his ethos. Uh, they do talk about, you know, kind of some of his public statements and so on. And, and there is, even among people I'm sure who voted for him, um, and, and, you know, rather conservative people, uh, you know, a lot of eye rolling and and things like this. But it's I, it's kind of limited to eye rolling. Well, and you know, here's here's the thing: my my people aren't aren't ones who they're not going to go and protest. They're they're not going to typically put out you know Facebook posts or Twitter <laughs> things or, or things like this or, or even um, letters to the editor or, or whatever. Um, they speak at the ballot box, right? And that's exactly what we found this last time is that nobody was sort of hearing my people mm-hmm. or, or people like my people all across the country. Part of that is because uh, probably, a, you know, uh, quite honestly, a bit of a you know, media bubble. Um, some of it is that they are they're quiet people who, who mind their work and their families and their communities, and then, you know, their... Which, to be fair, is true of most people. What's that? Which, which is true of most people. Yeah, yeah, and and they 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 speak at the ballot box. So I, I think that a lot of the reaction that we might see to him, I, I think that I may have to wait, actually, till the next election cycle to start hearing that mm-hmm. and to then finally see that when, when they do actually vote. So it doesn't... I mean, I guess you're saying they just don't talk about it, but are they not reading about his Russia connections? Do they not care? Do they not? I mean, I'm, I'm sure they're. I'm sure they're aware and reading mm-hmm. and and so on. You know, we were part of that whole. Uh, actually, our our region was uh, part of that whole thing that happened in Wisconsin with the. Uh, um, where basically he was 
rejected mm-hmm. here in the primary. Yeah. And, and our region was a part of that. I mean, they, you know, both of my counties went to Cruz. And, uh, you know, so a lot of my people listen to the, the sort of conservative uh, talk radio here in the area, which, which really helped to propel Cruz to the nomination here in uh here in Wisconsin, um, so I'm I'm positive uh, that they are aware of this, mm-hmm. uh, these sorts of things. Um, again, you know they they tend to be rather quiet people who you know don't don't talk about this sort of thing publicly as much. And it was the same with same with Obama. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know when various you know, moves were made and so on, or, or orders released or uh, what have you, people didn't talk about it a whole lot. With Clinton and the, you know, with the whole email scandal, Benghazi or whatever, they're they're pretty quiet. Um, so I wouldn't say that the quietness is for lack of knowledge or information. I'd, I'd say it's just uh, kind of the way they are in, in general. Well, it makes them it makes them hard to hear if they're quiet. <laughs> well, that's that's right. Because <laughs> um, I know it's one of your concerns is that you know coastal elites aren't paying attention to these people, but you know if if they are not talking except at the ballot boxes, it's hard to hear them. And I I'm just genuinely curious, like what you think it would take for the people that you know to reject Trump, like to feel. Like he needs it, or at the very least, to feel like he needs some kind of check on him. Well, I mean, I, I think it. I mean, in a sense, they already they they did in the primary. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they they voted against him already in the primary, and and once again, it was kind of. But Cruz hasn't proven to be much of a check on him either. No, uh, no, but uh, certainly, you know, they they did not you know, go for him uh, the first time around. Mm-hmm. I, I guess that, uh, I guess what it would, would take is, you know, like I said, they, they, they speak at the ballot box. I, I think that in four years it's going to take a better candidate, mm-hmm. you know, than Hillary Clinton. And that, I think that's kind of a important thing to put out there that maybe in our current conversation has gotten lost a little bit is that you know, Clinton in their eyes was was very deficient, and they're, you know, as as kind of shocking as some of the things about Trump and 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 so on. There are things that are sort of equally shocking to them about Clinton. I mean, the whole, you know, if they had if Hillary had kind of maybe been a little bit more like like Bill when it came to the abortion issue, you know, sort of the safe, legal, and rare kind of a thing, that might have helped a little bit. Uh, but she certainly didn't sound like that when it came to that issue to them. And and this is a real big issue for my people. So um, rural so, Wisconsin farmers and factory workers were thinking about the Supreme Court? I'm not sure if the Supreme Court was as much of a big issue, as much as sort of the moral embrace of uh, abortion that at least... I feel like they they saw in Clinton. It's not like, and, but it's not like Trump has been a. I mean, Trump's been, you know, ad been pro choice most of his life. Right. That's, that's right. So um, <laughs> Trump was absolutely 
you know, wishy-washy on this for for most of his election, but uh, wishy-washy, I guess, is a little bit better than, you know, kind of standing with the shout-your-abortion crowd or whatever. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you know, I mean, uh, this is... uh, I'm only telling you what... uh, Certainly no, no, I know you're you're, you're basically my correspondent here. Like you're you're being my correspondent in a way. Well, so I'm just telling you yeah. what my people for them Hillary Clinton was more tightly aligned, you know, the pro-abortion forces than Trump was. <laughs> and uh certainly seemed to be, you know, much more um If only she'd shown a little more shame about it. I'm sorry. I mean I know what you're trying to say. Well, I, I mean, at least uh, more of an acknowledge of um, uh, acknowledgement of kind of like the you know moral concern that people have yeah. r- regarding it. I well, mean, I think that actually was sort of completely that at least for my people that if that was there for her, it it certainly wasn't anything that they saw. Right. I mean, I think we're getting a little. I mean, this is an important issue, and I actually think it's something. I mean. It, deserves further conversation. But I kind of want to get more to, you know, what's happening in your community. Because the other thing that I've been thinking about is, you know, your community, you know, is factory workers and farmers. And I looked up the statistics. It's it's uh, just over half of them have employee insurance. Most of everyone else has Medicaid or Medicare. And, you know, the future doesn't look great for them if the status quo remains. And it's not clear what Trump is even going to do. I mean, especially on the on the issue of of the economy in the Midwest. Like, do you think that they? I mean, what's going to happen if if it doesn't get better for them? Yeah. So you know, honestly, I, and I've thought about this. I I actually honestly think that there would have been a a very strong possibility if Obamacare had you know kind of worked particularly well for a lot of people here that I I think that Clinton would have held a a stronger Mm. chance. Mm. Um, So I I think about one Trump. Well, Trump's going to make it better. So maybe maybe things will we're going to get a better version of Obamacare, right? Well, I, I, you know, I don't know. (laughs) I I I have no idea on this. But I think about, you know, for example, like my um, uh, a friend of mine who was a who was a Trump voter. He is a contractor for flooring, so mm-hmm. he he's a pretty small operator. It's him, and you know, at most he employs about two guys at a time. But he stays really busy. He has a lot of work, and you know, brings in uh, a good income for his family and everything. But uh, he's got a lot of uh, a lot of health issues in his family. Um, you know, one of his family members has. Uh, uh, ongoing migraine issues. Another um, is having kind of like uh, epileptic uh, kind of episodes and so on. And you know, talking with him, his uh, his medical bills can be just incredible. I mean, sometimes he'll have to lay out. You know, he talked about one trip he had to make down to uh, Milwaukee for one of his children um, on one of these health issues. He had to lay out twelve thousand dollars. You know, for for that trip and the uh the health care involved um you know so i know that he's you know he's self-employed and all this so it makes it a little bit different but you know if um obamacare had sort of uh worked for him i, I think that he really could have been um a clinton voter uh, potentially um so 
yeah, I, I absolutely think that the healthcare issue, um, at least for my people, is a big one, a very big one. I think again, it you know, it hasn't been particularly working well for them, um, even with the reforms that were made over the last you know over the last eight years, um, and that could that very well could be an issue which leads to being a you know um, how they how they I guess speak at the ballot box in four years. Mm. I was just looking at a report actually just out um, yesterday that it is true that if ACA is repealed, about 400,000 people will lose health insurance in Wisconsin. That's a lot in Wisconsin. So we'll see what about that repeal and replace. You know, we're just about running out of time. And I'm wondering, so there's been a lot of talk um, and hand-wringing in the you know, coastal elite, which I will go ahead and throw myself into that since I, I have a perch in the media <laughs> that is equivalent to being a coastal elite. Yeah. I, I, I haven't exactly been wringing my hands, but there is hand wringing. And, and this whole show comes from this idea that we should be able to talk to each other. Sure. Um, even if we disagree and we should try to figure out why we disagree. Yeah. Um, do you think that the people that that you pastor to your people, as you have been referring to them, which I I like that you say that. I'll say your people. <laughs> Are they open to conversation? I mean, you know, we've so far talked about what it would take to change their minds about Trump just in terms of like their day to day lives. Right. Like if they lose their health care, if the economy goes further south, that kind of thing. Like, is it something that they even are kind of interested in or aware of the idea that there are these coastal elites wringing their hands talking about them <laughs> and how they should be listened to more? Well, I guess I'll leave aside, you know, kind of their perceptions of the the coastal elites, um, as much as to say, in favor of discussing the issue, you know, are my people, um, you know, willing to to talk mm-hmm. and to uh, consider other viewpoints and so on? And I would say, um, absolutely. I would I would definitely say so. Um, you know, there is. I would say, you know, kind of getting to, you know, some of the core core values that that lead to difference. I mean, you know, my people they they care about family, local community, local place. I, I think that that's kind of, um, you know, at odds with, you know, sort of uh, what I think a lot of our elites tend to value, which is, um, you know, various forms of like like libertarianism, whether that's like social or economic or what have you. Um, I mean, it actually kind of puts them at odds with both the elites on both the left and the right in some ways, you know, mm-hmm. really. So, but are they willing to talk? I mean, well, let me, let me tell you about my experience here. One reason why I like uh, the idea of your show is that at least what I perceive... What <laughs> so far, so good, I hope. Yeah, no, what I, what I see you trying to do is to sort of... Uh, Go to the sources. Go mm-hmm. and talk to people, you know, one on one, and that's something I believe in. And and because I believe in that, um, I've I've tried to do that with my people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, a great example of this is um, last year, a number of my parishioners said, you know, we want to learn about um, other religions, not because you know we're we're pretty theologically conservative. Um, our they weren't shopping. Here. We're, we're not like saying everything's the same or whatever. They just wanted to understand the differences mm-hmm. and 
and so on, and said, well, if you really want to do this, the, the best way to do this is to actually go and talk to people who practice those religions in the flesh. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we did have classroom sessions, but then I took my people. Um, we have visited secret waras, mosques, you know, Jewish synagogues, uh, Hindu temples, not to worship, not to participate in the worship uh, or anything or, or the prayers, but to observe and to talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I was a, a little bit afraid that I'm, <laughs> I might lose my, lose my job uh, mm-hmm. doing this. But quite honestly, I was very pleased that um, my people embraced that very much so. I, I did not hear a single disparaging comment about about doing that, and they, I, I believe, uh, showed themselves to be while while honoring their own beliefs and, and holding firm to those, yet being willing to hear from others, person to person, about their own perspectives and beliefs as well. Um, are they willing willing to talk? Uh, I think absolutely. And I'm just curious, did those visits, do you think they made any kind of impression on what they think about policy and politics? Like having gone to a mosque and visited with those people and found them to be, what do you know, flesh and blood human beings who are probably pretty generous in their personal interactions, I'm guessing, Um, because most people tend to be. when When you show respect for their beliefs, they tend to show respect right back. Did that have an influence of any kind, like, do you think? Well, I, I think that knowledge always does impact us and influence us, although maybe sometimes in ways that we don't always perceive completely at the time or, or it takes time to sort of work in. Yeah, I think it was eye-opening um, for them. I mean, they at the mosque, for example, was, uh, and I, I brought up, I, I asked the hard questions. So, mm-hmm. you know, do you think it's, you know, for example, do you think it's possible to be a Muslim and, and live in a Western democratic society um, as a full participating member? And, you know, one of the men, um, you know, asked the hard questions, and one of the men spoke up and said, you know, I've, I've served my country as a soldier. I'm very proud for defending my country and defending liberty, and part of the reason why I'm here is is because of liberty and so on. So uh, did that impact them? I I think so. Um, On the other hand, and I think it's pretty important to be said, I mean, they did see that they also brought up the the issue of, you know, women's place in Islam, and... um, you know, they observed that the you know women were not uh, allowed in the general area of the congregation, and and kind of heard about you know kind of these, uh, and there were there were expressions there of uh, you know kind of uh, Islam's view of of the woman's place and and so on, um, which uh, I think uh, you know, impact them. Yeah, but I'm actually what? what I'm guess I'm curious about is something, you know, just to cut to the grain um, here. So if there's a Muslim registry, do you think that having gone to that mosque, um, your people will be alarmed? Will they see the humanity of people suffering? I, I do think... Um, or is it going to... Or, or I, I are they still going to be thinking about their jobs? not particularly sit well with my people. Okay. I do. I think that uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that um, 
from that experience and then as well from from their own experiences um you know Wisconsin immigrants in Wisconsin which I mean my congregations kept records in German until the late 40s um were no foreigners to uh nativism and uh and also kind of you know religious um suppression mm-hmm. and uh so yeah I don't I don't think that would particularly sit well with okay. uh with a lot of my people well I hope it doesn't come to that yeah, me too. But we're going to have to say goodbye for now. I appreciate you calling in, and you are often in my thoughts um, when I'm thinking about how things are going for people who put their hope and trust in Trump. So perhaps we will talk again. I've been talking to Pastor Christopher Jackson. Uh, he serves at St. Peter's Lutheran in Forestville, Wisconsin, uh, St. John's Lutheran in Algoma, Wisconsin, and he's been very generous with his time. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to With Friends Like These with Anna Marie Cox. So I'm talking to Jamil Smith, who's my colleague at MTV News. He is the senior national correspondent. I always get us confused. Which is it? <laughs> you're the senior political correspondent. And I'm the, you're, and you're the senior national correspondent. And I'm sure they yeah. had put lots of thought into what those, how those are distinct. <laughs> And they didn't just or we, come or, or we made them up ourselves. <laughs> or we made them up ourselves, something like that. I don't know. I think I was throwing darts at a board. So uh, welcome to the show. And Thank you. It's an honor. It's good to have you. And I just want to chat with you about, you know, sort of the week in Trump, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> so the thing that's the top, like the story that everybody's buzzing about, I just want to address kind of quickly, because it is a mind-blowing story, which is a story that was in Politico about how the Trump staff manages him, right? It's unbelievable. You have a president who's 70 years old, the oldest president to ever be inaugurated. And yet, here's a story about how his staff has had to manage him like a child. Like literally like a child. Literally like a child. Yeah. I mean, I know friends, I don't have kids, but I know friends who do manage their children's screen time, like how much time they spend on, you know, watching television or using their iPad or using a phone or playing video games. They manage that time, you know, because, you know, they don't want their kids to, you know. <laughs> well, to get overstimulated. You know, I mean, I, we, I think you know, a parent has concerns about a child being overstimulated and becoming cranky. They also have concerns about a child getting overly, let's say, emotional. And that seems to have been the Trump team's concern too. So they literally, they they literally tried to manage his screen time. And this is the this is the part of the story that I actually think isn't getting as much attention, but mm-hmm. is equally as alarming as his own as Trump's apparent. I don't want to do a diagnosis, but you know, ADHD and emotional volatility was the way yeah. that they they planted positive stories in That's some news outlets. I mean, you, you want to talk about all the sort of God help us moments that are in the story. There's, of course, you know, we, the concerns about, you know, leaving him alone for several hours can prove damaging because he consumes too much television. <laughs> Which is the one that's that's the kind of like, oh, shit, you know. Yeah. We're like, oh, my God, this guy is president. But the planting of the stories is it's just insidious. Mm-hmm. I mean, the idea that you would have, first of all, to have to go to those lengths in order to distract him, um, says a lot, but also the fact that he lives completely within his own bubble. We have all this criticism in our public discourse about liberals living in their own bubble, not understanding the Trump voter and all these different, you know, criticisms Mm -hmm. and and, and introspections. 
Well, we have a president who seems to only watch one channel. No, he watches two. He and definitely all, watches two. Oh, oh, oh! What's, what's, what's no, wrong? he watches all. He watches all three news channels. I can, I can prove it because he watches CNN because he complains about CNN. He watches Fox because he pray, he he quotes Fox, and then he obviously watches Morning Joe. So, but, oh right. But 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 yeah. but, here's what's weird about it: is he only watches television. He doesn't read. Um, and the way that they got him the positive stories, which is, I guess, like the Trump equivalent of like waving the favorite toy, you know, like, look, <laughs> right. look, look, favorite toy. And this is more like, you know, but almost like a pet than it was a child. Um, but the way they got him his ego boost and th- to distract him from the negative stories was to plant stories in compliant press like Daily Caller, Washington Examiner and Breitbart. And then feed those stories to Fox. Like, mm. it was this weird, like, roundabout thing. But think about all the complicitness there. Yeah. It's just it's just a complete circle jerk of information. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't really know where it's coming from. You don't know if it's coming necessarily from Breitbart. You don't necessarily know if it's coming from Trump himself. Or it's coming from, you know, Fox News state media. Yeah. It's yeah. this weird Truman Show kind of life almost <laughs> like, he, he thinks he's re- experiencing real life but really it's actually all incredibly stage managed i, I read recently there's uh, someone who made a good suggestion um that if trump had lost the election we should have built him like his own white house where he could pretend to be president oh i think that's and actually like i've suggested around. that's what we should do now <laughs> and, and it looks like that's actually what he's doing yeah <laughs> he's constructing a reality around himself that, in, that, that not only enables him to just believe whatever he wants to believe, that you know allows him to escape any kind of accountability, but also condemns his enemies, condemns the people who might offer that criticism. Right. And so, when you create that kind of environment, where not it's not just about you know feeding your own ego, it's about making sure that the public is so confused mm-hmm. about what's actually happening that you can manipulate and twist their emotions in any which way you see fit yeah that to me is the more insidious goal and And i think he's uh to some degree he's accomplishing it but i don't think his his audience is quite as large as he thinks it is that's definitely true um but i and i we touched on something i think will lead us to what is really more important story and a larger story but this issue of like his the the ease with which his staff apparently constructs this truman show reality for him one of the reasons they, they can do that is because he's not someone who believes in things that are larger than himself. You know, he doesn't right. have a real value system. I bring that up because of the rescinding of the Dear Colleague letter that the Justice Department did uh, yesterday over transgender bathroom access, transgender rights in general, under Title IX, which people have pointed out. Trump campaigned, you know— as the first president, he was the first Republican to say LGBTQ, um, mm-hmm. and for nominee, um, which he did say like he was ordering a sandwich. But let's give it to him, LGBT. Right, and he held he held a rainbow flag on stage, which upside down made which is, him, yeah, <laughs> which is maybe made him, uh, <laughs> yeah. made him like the greatest Republican gay rights <laughs> activist ever. I, he, I never understood that, yeah. you know, that, that and, praise that he got for that. And he did say K- Caitlyn Jenner could use any bathroom she wanted. And he seems to have gone against that. Um, well, maybe she can, but not transgender students in public schools. That that, that they apparently are not Caitlyn Jenner. Yeah, 
And I, I, always, I said at the time, like, I think that says more about what he, he thinks celebrity is its own gender, you know, like, <laughs> when you're a star, you can do anything, um, to quote him. <laughs> himself. Yes, yes. But this is a real thing. We're joking about it. But, you know, on the heels of this decision to say to, to schools that, that you don't have to let, um, you, you know, transgender students use the use the bathroom associated with the gender that they identify with, it was a report, you probably saw it, that in states and areas that have gay marriage, mm-hmm. teen suicides have gone down. Yeah. I mean, look, we can get into the legalese, and I think that that's an actually valuable thing to do, to, you know, to, to note that this is a withdrawal of that support, you know, mm-hmm. for transgender students. And what that inherently, I think, implies to transgender students is that your government is abandoning you. Your government is determined that because you are who you are, or who you are who you say you are, your government is not going to either believe you or support your efforts to merely just do everything that literally every human being does every single day, which is to go to the bathroom where you are comfortable going to the bathroom. I mean, the fact that this is actually happening, um, you know, it just, it should send a message to pretty much every marginalized community that this administration won't bother to lift a finger to defend you. Right. If you, come under you know, some sort of duress. I mean, you could actually, you know, transgender students are going to be facing, because of this, a more potentially violent environment. Transgender students do not assault people in the bathroom. That's just, there's no reported cases of transgender people. Zero. Um, Zero. people in the bathroom. Zero. And but, also, it's illegal to assault but, people in bathrooms, period. That's always what we need to say, right? Like, right. assaulting or creeping well, on people in bathrooms is illegal and hopefully will always be illegal, no matter what gender you are or what reason you use the bathroom. You know? And straight people should, uh, straight people should remember that. Yeah. Yeah. The straight people who are assaulting <laughs> the transgender folks in the bathroom for being transgender. Yeah, that, you've, you've hit on something really important. Problem. Yeah, you've hit on something really important, though, which is the way that these ch- changes and what, what might seem like small changes in policy create an environment that is different and more dangerous. You know, yes. that, that for instance, so this this statistical link that's been found between having gay marriage in, in an area and a drop in teen suicides like that speaks to the power of of our environment to guide us. In how we feel about ourselves, and also in how others um, are socialized to treat us, right? And right. when you say we're not going to make this protection for transgendered students, what you're also saying is, and you know what? If you personally are, are weirded out by this, you're probably right to be, you know. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it gives this kind of moral license. Yeah, I mean, it gives, it gives I think people moral license to believe that somehow God is involved. And I think that's an aspect of this that I think sometimes goes under-discussed. You know, this idea that this is somehow a part of religious freedom um, for communities, you know, which may be, you know, gets dominated by Christians, to impose their belief system on government, on government protections, or allow freedom for them to discriminate, you know, based upon what they feel like God's Word is telling them to do. And there's nothing in the Bible <laughs> that tells you. As far as that. I know. Yeah, I mean, I've been through it a few times, and <laughs> I haven't come across anything that tells you that a transgender man or woman going to the bathroom in a bathroom that is, you know, corresponding to their gender identity 
And they all wore robes back then anyway, right? So, like, everyone was cross-dressing. They were more, they were more clothed back then. Yeah. Um, you know, this idea of moral license is applicable to other stuff, and you and I talked about this um, on our own, which is um, the rhetoric that the Trump administration has around police brutality. Right. And with regards to that, I mean, obviously we saw Trump sign three executive orders recently that were essentially a Blue Lives Matter Valentine to law enforcement. Mm -hmm. I mean, they didn't really do a whole lot as far as like changing the actual practice of law enforcement. It's just about the message that they send. The message they send is that police lives matter more than, you know, certainly black lives or, you know, any other lives of color, but pretty much anyone else. Mm-hmm. And there were already special protections in, you know, state law and federal law for police officers. You know, it's it's not like they are being targeted. You know, it's one of the safest times in recent memory to be a police officer. Now, of course, you had last, you know, the tragedies, of, you know, the Dallas police officers who were killed. Mm-hmm. Um, you've had a number of, you know, the New York police officers who were assassinated, two officers, you know, in recent years. But those incidents do not indicate a larger problem. And also now, those incidents in and of themselves are part of the reason for the statistical bump in police targeted I mean, I, violence. I think the best way to understand Trump in a lot of ways is is the actions themselves that he does, you know, that he performs are not necessarily as important as the message that they send. Mm-hmm. You know, the travel ban, even the travel ban, which was horrible and it, and it caused actual physical problems and, and, and potential tragedies for people who, especially for those folks who are, you know, were sick and could not travel to the, you know, America mm-hmm. for treatment, that, those actions aren't as much the issue as the message they send. With immigration, mm-hmm. yes, there's crackdowns all over the country. ICE is acting like this, you know, deportation force that he promised. You have a woman who was, you know, in the hospital with a brain tumor, undocumented woman, the Hill reported that was taken out of a you know hospital in Texas against her will. Mm. She's 26 years old and has a brain tumor. So those acts are more symbolic, I think, even, even as horrible as they are individually. They yeah. send a message of fear, and that is what authoritarians do. This is how authoritarians roll. And nothing he's doing is disproving the fears that we had for what he might actually, you know, yeah. do as president were elected. It just gets easier and easier to, you know, first you crack down on immigration, then you say that police are threatened and should use whatever means necessary. You know, you also imply that transgender people are predators. You start to go down the road that does end in either, you know, registering people or rounding them up. I mean, it's yeah. not where it has to go. And I'm not saying that that's like an actual target for anyone, although I have my suspicions about Steve Bannon and Steve Miller, Steve Miller. But that is the road you go down. I mean, you have the famous saying, you know, first they came for mm. this group mm-hmm. and I was silent. And for, then they came for this group and I was silent. Then they came for me and there was, you know, no, no one, one left, to, left speak. to speak. Yeah. And that is what I think people really need to take, in, take into uh, consideration, especially those of us who have privilege in this world and have a voice and have a platform. You look at what is happening at these town halls with Republicans going home and seeing that even folks in deep red America 
are really displeased with the Trump agenda. <laughs> Those folks, it would have been nice if they'd spoken up before. It would have been nice if they'd spoken at the ballot box on November 8th last year. But it is important that these folks are speaking up now. And I think we need to really, you know, take account for the fact that Americans are really, really dissatisfied with what is going on. His approval ratings in, in the high 30s, when normally new presidents are in the 60s at least, um, it's just, you know, folks are not with this. And as many, you know, people, you may have the occasional red hat person showing up, and I'm sure everyone at CPAC is thrilled about what's going on in the Trump administration, but that is a distinct minority of Americans, and, you know, people need to remember that. And we're going to end on an up note. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jamil, senior national correspondent at MTV, my colleague. Thanks a lot. Thanks for calling in. Thank you, my friend. You've been listening to With Friends Like These, my very first episode. I am happy to get feedback on this. You can tweet at me at Anna Marie Cox on the Twitter machine. And also you can email me with friendslikepod at gmail.com. I am interested in exploring perhaps people's personal experiences in relationships and politics, politics and relationships. If you have a question and you want me to answer it on the air, please send a voice memo. And if you want to write it out, write it up too. That's again with friendslikepod at gmail. And I'll uh, talk to you next week. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.